Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Today I'm talking to Deborah Ahrens of the University of New South Wales about her book, Jokes in the Linguistic Mind. The book is an interesting and original introduction to modern linguistics in which key concepts are illustrated with the reference to examples of humour and wordplay. Deborah, what inspired you to take this particular angle on the subject? Well, um, actually, I've been teaching linguistics for a long time, and I find that uh, when I'm trying to make an explanation of a linguistics point, it's often much more useful to just tell a joke and watch them get the point uh, by by understanding the joke. Then it's much easier to go back and explain the point. Uh, So sometimes I think the joke just makes the point in a much pithier way than one can do it by explanation. So much easier, really. Uh, so I've been doing that for years, and it suddenly occurred to me that there might be something in that. There might be something that's interesting about jokes that's of relevance to cognitive science and linguistics. I'm also, I suppose, not restricted to jokes so much as wordplay. I think. So I'm talking about a particular kind of humor, and that's humor that works with the structural function of language. Yeah, you make clear early in your book that um, you don't intend to write to write your book as a uh, work in humor studies in particular, but very much in linguistics. How do you see the demarcation between those two disciplines, or the uh, where do you draw the line of what you would consider to be useful for your purpose? Well, uh, firstly, I'll talk about the purpose of humor theory. I think uh, humor theorists are interested in advancing the study of humor. Um, I think as a linguist, I'm interested in advancing the study of linguistics. So I would think that an analysis of jokes doesn't contribute all that much to humor theory. Humor theory is in general concerned with um, either what makes things funny or um, how a joke is structured, how punchlines work, um, how ambiguity works generally, and why that creates humor. And I think also humor theorists have been for many years been concerned with essentialist theories such as the superiority theory of humor. Do we use humor because it makes us feel superior and better? Uh, some people think of humor as an incongruity, th- uh, as a, a question of a way of studying incongruity. Other people um, are interested in the therapeutic effects of humor. So those are some of the things that humor theorists are concerned with. Uh, whereas I'm interested in language and how humor can tell us some things about language and linguistics. So I don't think I've contributed much to humor theory, although I've certainly used it. That's interesting, um, because you survey a very wide range of uh, topics, or topics which cover a very wide range of linguistic phenomena. Yes. In particular, uh, you, you also discuss the notion of translatability as a possible 
diagnostic for a certain kind of linguisticness of humour. Yes. Uh, in fact, I make a distinction in the book between humour that's sometimes called de dicto, about words, and de re, about things. And um, I'm only interested in this book in humour that is de dicto, that is linguistic, whether the humour is on some aspect of the language. So almost by definition, those kind of jokes are not translatable because they play on some aspect of language, of the language that's being used. So what might be funny, uh, because it picks up some quirk of English morphology, it's not going to be funny if you translate it into Russian, say, because it doesn't have the same morphology and it's not going to have the same ambiguity. So basically the kinds of stuff I treat here in general, those jokes are not translatable um, almost by definition because they are concerned with properties of the particular language in which the joke's being made. My impression was that the um, earlier material in the book, because you started talking about pragmatics in the first yes. instance, uh, might be somewhat more translatable in that sense, and tap concepts which might be regarded as less linguistic or more, and, and perhaps more generally cognitive. Do you feel that way about it? Yes, I think that's absolutely right. I think that's absolutely right. Um, some of those jokes are much more translatable, not necessarily faithfully, but, you know, one could make analogues. Of course, the issue with um, humor, which I've barely treated in this book, is that um, there's also a problem of cultural translation. What is funny in one culture is often not funny in another because it taps a particular aspect of the culture that's being um, joked about. So uh, that's another reason that humor doesn't travel very well, I think, is that different cultures find different things funny. And, you know, different individuals in different cultures obviously find things funny too. But I would say the kind of humor that taps something particular about a speech act, if that speech act is easily uh, transferred to another uh, language, we can you can translate it. If it's not, you can't do it. So I'm, I'm thinking of something like the standard example they give you in textbooks where um, someone is standing at the bottom of a flight of stairs with a heavy box, somebody else walks past, and the first person says, can you give me a hand with these? Now, English has got an ambiguity on can over there, which actually allows the the uh, person who's being asked to opt out. He can say, oh, I'd like to, but I've got a really bad back. I mean, it's a request to carry the books upstairs, but English allows you to opt out because of the ambiguity in can. Now, that sort of thing does not translate well, and it is a pragmatic issue. But there are obviously other pragmatic uh, things that can be transferred over to other cultures. I can give you an example, if you would like one, of a joke, which I think is probably translatable. I just don't know if it would be as funny as I find it. Um, a young woman, and we always add blonde, you know, a blonde woman, because that's part of the joke always, it's just a handy shortcut, walks into a library, walks up to the reference desk and says, 
I'd like a burger, an order of fries, and a Diet Coke, please. And the librarian looks at her in absolute horror and says, this is a library. And the woman says, oh, I'm so sorry. May I have a Diet Coke, an order of fries, and a double burger, please? I don't know if you can hear that. I can. And okay. I, enjoyed, I enjoyed that example in your book. That was, that was one uh, entirely new to me, actually. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, the basis of that is there's something very, very interesting about that joke, I think, because uh, the woman gets the speech act. The blonde gets the speech act. She gets that she's being rebuked, uh, you know, but she thinks she's being rebuked for talking loudly because that's what you get rebuked for in libraries, not for, like, ordering a, a hamburger, in a library. So she, she gets the rebuke, but she picks up on the wrong reason for the rebuke. Uh, so I think that's very, really an interesting joke if you're talking about speech act theory. Um, I'm not sure if it would translate well. I don't see why it wouldn't in any country in which, um, or in any culture in which, you know, the notion is that you have to be very quiet in libraries. Some of these um, speech acts have very general applicability. Another example from your book, um, which seems to have the same kind of structure, is the uh, the Harvard preposition joke. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, that's the joke of somebody who, a stranger, walks up to a student at Harvard and says, hey, man, can you tell me where the library's at? And um, the guy says, here at Harvard, we don't end sentences with prepositions. So the guy says, I beg your pardon. Could you please tell me where the library is at, asshole? Um, which is where you actually play with the structure of language quite directly because it really – that joke is about language in a – in an obvious sense. It's about prepositions, you know, and a discussion of prepositions. So that's a slightly different kind of uh, – a different kind of joke. But I imagine you could uh, do that in, in any language, not faithfully, but you'd keep to the spirit of the joke in any language. You know, you just take something that's generally prescriptively applied and um, break the rule and break the rule in a funny way that shows how funny it is to – that the rule is stupid anyway and how easy it is to follow the rule and still say something that's not correct and that's offensive in this case. Going back to the uh, pragmatics chapter, it struck me that there's an enormously wide range of topics from a linguistic point of view covered there, ranging from Gricean maxims to speech act theory, which we've already talked about, to reference assignment and the difficulties yes. arising from that. It's strong that just about every joke I've ever heard has some kind of pragmatic resonance of, of some kind. Was it difficult to decide where to draw the line on that chapter? Oh, absolutely, uh, particularly because, well, there are a number of reasons. Let me start with pragmatics and say jokes themselves, you know, always occur in a context, and they have very special pragmatics because uh, you, you are basically asked, if it's a, a real joke, you know, a joke-telling joke, what you're asking the listener to do is suspend a normal uh, 
normal listening and processing, what you're essentially saying is we're going off now into a different kind of communication. We're changing the frame. This is now non-bona fide communication. So don't take what I'm about to say seriously. I'm kind of putting it in brackets. So I think in general, jokes, the kind of jokes that actually occur as the joking speech act are a very, they are governed by a different set of rules. Wordplay, on the other hand, um, uses pragmatics in an entirely different way. I'm just talking about wordplay that comes up in the course of general conversation. Because what you're doing then is you're taking attention away from what's being talked about and drawing attention to the language in which it's being talked about. Um, and some people move in and out of that very easily. Other people, particularly listeners, can get very distracted by that because they're actually listening for content and somebody suddenly somebody's fooling around with form, sometimes more or less appropriately or more or less smoothly. Um, so that's a general point I wanted to make about pragmatics is that in general jokes have to be a part of pragmatics. They always occur in context. I mean, there are people who amuse themselves with jokes that they just tell themselves. But that's, uh, you know, and I think a lot of us just do wordplay in our heads all the time. But the kind of stuff I'm talking about requires a listener and a speaker and a context. So I think by definition, all jokes are some kind of uh, pragmatic event. As far as drawing the line between pragmatics and semantics is concerned, that's a whole different story. So I, too, I try to restrict my chapter on semantics to what are generally regarded as uh, semantic aspects of language. Look, it's an arbitrary line, I think. Anyone who's written a textbook on linguistics or read one will tell you that there are always boundary phenomena about what falls under semantics, what falls under pragmatics. I think that there are a lot of linguistic theorists who don't believe that there is actually a line. So uh, I think it's it's very difficult to – I just happen to draw the line on what I consider to be linguistic phenomena that could be analyzed using semantics. Um, specifically in the semantics chapter. And, of course, a lot of jokes involve semantics and syntax and pragmatics all at the same time. Those are great jokes. My impression was that in reading the semantics chapter, uh, by comparison to the pragmatics chapter, which has, which is illustrated by examples of jokes that are about things in some sense, in the semantics chapter there's very much more of a turn to language. Yeah. Um, but the consequence that some of the there seems to be something an emergence of um, absurdist humour in the examples. Some some quotes from the Goon shows struck me. You know, rather than surrender, we gave ourselves up. Yes. And as I swam ashore, I dried myself to save time. That's right. Yeah. Do you, do you feel the semantics? There's something about semantics which lends itself to that kind of humour. Um. Well, certainly those kind of ambiguity. Well, there's semantic ambiguities or semantic anomalies or. All the sort of standard features, you know, antinomy, uh, synonymy, uh, the absurdity when semantics and logic clash, that sort of thing. I think it's it's all um, pretty much uh, the fodder of a lot of daily humor. But that semantic ambiguity, that's because people, I think, pay attention to words 
a lot when they're making a certain kind of linguistic joke. For me, um, just because I suppose I'm a syntactician by training, I'm really interested in syntactic ambiguity as well. Um, and I think that takes a different form. Um, you know, I mean, I think this book altogether is about ambiguity. It's about linguistic ambiguity. But you could write a book about linguistic ambiguity and it wouldn't be funny. So I'm interested in the ambiguities that in some way lead to humor. I think it's a, it's a, it seems to be a very striking, very large uh, class of examples. And definitely um, I feel your, your book benefits from having those, having the use of those to make, make its point. Um, in, in terms of syntactic ambiguity, we're into Groucho Marx's famous uh, elephant yeah. line, for instance. I suppose syntactic ambiguity is, is a case where translatability is particularly difficult. Yes, I would think so. Although semantic ambiguity too, uh, not well. The kind of examples you were giving of uh, uh, while, uh, I dried my, while I swam ashore, I dried myself to save time. I think that, of course, you could translate, you know, in some way retaining the joke, not the faithfulness of the language. But when it comes to syntactic ambiguity, you could be lucky. I mean, I think you can always be lucky that uh, in certain languages – you can pick up the same kind of syntactic ambiguity. I'm trying to think of a good example. It doesn't occur to me right now, but it will come to me. But um, in general, they have to do with, with sentence structure, and sentence structure varies from language to language. You wouldn't expect the same sort of ambiguity to be easily found in, an, in the other language and still retain the joke could make another sort of equivalent joke. I mean, for instance, a lot of the jokes on syntactic ambiguity involve placement of adver adverbials, adverbial phrases. Uh, you know, so the Groucho Marx is, this morning I shot an elephant in my pajamas, and then the punchline or the retort that picks up the joke, the unobvious Unintended, well, uh, well, not unintended, but the 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 least preferred reading is what he was doing in my pajamas. I'll never know. So uh, he deliberately takes the less preferred reading. So that's to do with adverb placement, though. It's a question of you know what does in my where does in my pajamas belong? You know, I mean, patently, if you're just being uh, logical, the chances of an elephant being in his pajamas, in uh, Groucho's pajamas, is, is almost impossible. On the other hand, the fact that anyone would actually be in their pajamas shooting an elephant is not too easy to imagine either, except if you've seen the movie when he actually is in his pajamas. Yeah. So I guess the uh, feature of that kind of humor is that it exploits these. Uh, familiar linguistic ambiguities, the, for example, garden path sentences, which yeah. we normally seem to go to great lengths to not make funny when we study them. Yes. Yeah, well, we do, don't we? <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, I want to go back to uh, the uh, example of uh, syntactic ambiguity and how it picks up on certain jokes use semantic and syntactic ambiguity to make the joke. So I, um, I'll give you an example that's uh, contextual, which gives it more of its uh, 
its humor, but I think even without much context, it works quite well. In 2008, Pope Benedict visited Sydney as part of World Youth Day. And in Sydney, not everyone was excited because the city pretty much closed down for World Youth Day. And uh, people started wearing a T-shirt that read, I was touched by the Pope down under. As a matter of interest, uh, the Australian authorities slapped a $500 fine on anyone who was wearing that T-shirt during the World Youth Day celebrations. Now, for me, what's interesting about that joke is it plays on down under, meaning Australia, but also meaning, of course, on the genitals. At this, um, So there's the semantic ambiguity of that, as well as the syntactic ambiguity in terms of the placement of um, down under. So in that case, I think the joke picks up on both the syntactic and the semantic ambiguity, and also contextually, which one doesn't have to know, but which makes it, I suppose, a little funnier in a black humor sort of way, is that the scandals that the Catholic Church has had involving being touched by priests uh, sort of makes it just a little bit funnier and naughtier, I suppose. Yeah, what seems to be going on is there are strongly preferred readings that clash with each other for different parts of the sentence. Yes. I guess that uh, jokes trading on down under as a uh, uh, as a sort of source of innuendo uh, yes. aren't normally necessarily welcomed by the majority of Australians on any given day, but. Uh, Australians, I think, uh, are pretty uh, open. On what they laugh about, they seem to laugh about everything. Um, I, I don't think that uh, people don't take that with uh, great humour. I think um, all bets are off when it comes to Australian humour. People seem to laugh at everything. Uh, I'll bear that in mind, but I'll still use <laughs> caution. Okay. okay, fine. In addition to syntax, you then go on to consider what might superficially seem to be almost the most linguistic and the most language-specific category of all the, the phonological or morphophonological yes. kinds of humour or wordplay. Yes, I do. Um, I mean, I use, of course, English examples, although I've got a couple of cross-ling or, you know, uh, examples of morphology involving more than one language. In a sense, the thing about morphology and phonology more than anything else is that it's a question of how the listener processes. So, you know, you're listening to a stream of sound. How you happen to segment it is uh, somehow due to what you're expecting, I suppose. Um, we have the standard examples in linguistic classes of, um, I think, uh, you know, things that are not terribly funny, like, why choose, where, where that is, you know, why should one choose something, or white shoes, uh, shoes that are white in color. Uh, they're all of those things. There's no real way to disambiguate them apart from context. But you can play with jokes like that all the time because people process things kind of online depending on the sort of series of sounds that are coming in. So a lot of it has to do with expectation and, you know, where the word boundaries are. 
But in fact, or syllable boundaries or phoneme boundaries, but in well, phoneme boundaries you can pick up. But a string is a string. Uh, and there's something the mind is doing that assigns structure to the string. Uh, the mind and, of course, context. So there's a lot you can play with in that. And, you know, I think what I'd like to say about all my jokes in this book is that they're very silly. The whole idea is that um, these sort of jokes are not sophisticated jokes. They make sophisticated linguistic points, but eight-year-olds can understand the jokes. So my favorite joke, which is in the morphology chapter, is, uh, you know, one of these children's riddles. What's brown and sticky? And the answer is a stick. Now, eight-year-olds think that's very funny. As a matter of interest, six-year-olds don't. Um, so obviously, eight-year-olds are processing that stuff, and they think it. They think about it, and then they think about why it's funny, and then they have to make some quite sophisticated um, linguistic judgments. Although they don't think, I mean, we don't think they can, and they don't think they can. They realize that sticky is fundamentally ambiguous. It could mean something, you know, that sticky like chewing gum, or that it's uh, in this case sticky is stick like which is brown and looks like a stick. So um, I think kids find this sort of stuff very, very interesting. But asking either a child or an adult who's not uh, a linguistic student to explain that joke is very, very – I mean, you're not going to get very far. My students very often don't know how to explain that joke. They know that it's funny, but they don't know how to explain why it's funny. So I think you can play a lot with morphology and phonology in that respect. And it gets us very naturally into the realm of tapping unconscious competencies, the way in which, for example, speech errors have been studied quite extensively in linguistics, as you mentioned. Mm. Do you feel that this is a relatively understudied area of our competencies? I think that it's barely been touched. There is some interesting neurological work, actually, um, but not from a ling – I mean, uh, I don't think linguists have used this enough. There is some very interesting work that has to do with hemispheric specialization um, and, you know, and notions about whether the left hemisphere responds to certain kinds of jokes and the right hemisphere to other kinds of jokes. You know, and the prediction would be, if you take a classical view, that any joke that uh, deals with structure essentially is a left hemisphere thing. Uh, on linguistic structure would be processed in left hemisphere, although we know for a fact, well, we don't know for a fact, standardly, humor is regarded as a right hemisphere function. So there have been some very interesting studies conducted. I think uh, Shiana Coulson is one of the people who's done this work that have to do with uh, usually puns, usually puns. And, uh, you know, which hemisphere lights up when the joke, when somebody gets the joke. So in a sense, that sort of work has, well, that sort of work is being done. Obviously, there's a fortune of work still to be done on that. And if one can work out the ways to do it experimentally, it's going to be, a, you know, a wonderful research project for someone. Um, but in terms of linguistics, I don't think it's been done really. I mean, I like, I mean, speech acts obviously are accidental, 
But, uh, you know, very witty people pick up on this sort of stuff all the time, and I've not seen anyone analyze it. For instance, uh, I have this joke in my book, and, I mean, part of it probably has to do with my pronunciation. But uh, someone I know called Pippa was marrying a guy called Perkins, and one of my friends said, oh, Pippa Perkins, the stutterer. Uh, now, uh, you know, he's just witty. He just picked up somewhere he was listening and he heard purr, purr, purr. And he thought, oh, that's the sound that stutterers make. You know, and it was just an accidental string of sounds. Um, and I think really good jokesters know how to play with that kind of thing because they're always wide awake to the possibilities. But these are people who are much, much con more conscious about language use or happen to be conscious in the moment. I think there is always the issue of you suddenly become conscious in the moment of the structure of the language that you're using. I think most of us are not. I mean, we're talking too fast. We're paying attention to the message. We're paying attention to the communication. Why should we be paying attention to the structure of language at the same time? Our I don't think our brains can do that. You know, we're, we're too busy doing what we're doing to pay attention to, um, you know, stuff that in fact might be shielded uh, really from conscious not, uh, you know, from uh, conscious apprehension. Mm. I mean, there's been work done in this on cognitive, in cognitive science. I'm not uh, a brilliant cognitive scientist. I mean, I read it. I'd like to be able to do more of it. But I think that's probably where a lot of this work is going to come from. This work on human processing, I hope, anyway. It's one of those things that seems like a remarkable competency. I mean, it's remarkable that people can do this at all, or anybody can do it at all. Although, of course, then when we start thinking about it, maybe language or spontaneous conversation in general is, is the same in that regard. Yes. Oh, oh, sorry, what are you asking me? Whether you think that uh, this is actually something that's categorically different for the people who are able to produce snappy comebacks and one-liners? No, no, I don't think it's categorically different. I don't. I just think that some people are either trained or just naturally pay more attention to the structure of, well, I'd say sort of automatized uh, daily routines or just ordinary communication than others. I mean, I, I suppose you can think about it like this. I, I'm not visually trained. I look at a painting. I like it. I really like it. If you ask me why I really like it, I haven't got a clue. Um, maybe someone can point out to me what's good about it. But there are other eyes, I think, that can look at a painting differently and that can make a painting differently. You know, that actually can make a painting. So I think in some cases there are people who are just hyper-conscious, but I don't think they're conscious all the time. I think a lot of, you know, I think language in general, thinking about the structure of language in general is really very difficult when you're using it. I don't think we do. But I have no doubt, and I suppose that for me is the main point of my book, I have no doubt that we have a lot of unconscious knowledge of language, and we generally don't have access to it. It's tacit. But I think jokes make it conscious. It's these kinds of jokes just activate a certain kind of consciousness, not for long, 
often just long enough to think about the joke and you say, oh, that's funny. And then you think about why it might be funny and then you move on. Unless you're a, a linguist or, you know, obsessed with this sort of thing. I think some people are a bit more obsessed than others. But, you know, the book is not for them. It's not about them. The book is about ordinary people who suddenly become conscious of the language that is used. And it seems to be a universal capability that we are all, in pathological cases, able to appreciate these properties of language when we have time to reflect on them. I think so. I think so. I mean, I've had quite an – I work in a school of languages, which means that I have access to speakers of lots of different languages. And so, you know, um, under the guise of having a cup of coffee, I ask them all kinds of questions. And um, I find some very interesting responses. People say we don't do that in our language. And then I have to go at them from very many different angles to – to make a point before they actually say, oh, yes, we do that, we do that. But uh, sometimes people say that very um, low class is a word that I've heard. It's very plebeian. You know, a vaudevillian humor is uh, you'd never use that, you know, among sophisticated and cultural people. I've heard that quite a lot from different language groups who actually see it as a very low art form. And um, in a sense, as a kind of a crude behavior, um, which I find is very interesting. I mean, it takes us away from your question, but I think one has to work quite hard sometimes with speakers of other languages to um, to show them that they too do it, um, but they might do it in very different contexts. I mean, I think it's universal that it's only sometimes that we reflect on the, uh, on the structure of our language and the functions, actually, of our language. Um, and there are certain activities that allow us to get these insights. And I happen to think that jokes, or, you know, wordplay, um, is one of the most wonderful ways of actually getting that kind of access to the tacit knowledge that we have. Taking up the subject of unconscious knowledge, uh, if we move on to the following chapter in, in your book, uh, you go on to analyse a short uh, sketch from a Monty Python album, oh, yes. the Word Association Football yes. sketch. What was it uh, particularly attracted you to that one as a, as a case in point? Well... You know, I've known that uh, Monty Python since I was a kid, and, I mean, I was just bowled over by it. And, I, you know, I just about know it off by heart. But it wasn't until I actually sat down to see if I could analyze each and every part of it that I realized how brilliant it really was. Now, I mean, for those people who don't know it, it's uh, it's uh, he's talking about word association, but while he's talking about it, he's doing it. But he's not just associating on words. He is associating on sounds. He's associating on, on um, syllable strings that he construes morphologically. Uh, he does all kinds of – he throws in speech acts in the middle of it. Uh, he uh, goes for basically phonological, morphological, syntactic, semantic, and pragmatic ambiguity, and he mixes them all together. He does it fast as well. 
and it's it's absolutely incredible. It's incredible. Also, while we're listening to it, we can generally just about understand it. When I sat down to pick it apart, I, I learned a lot more about it and what the tricks were than I than I could have imagined. Um, but I, I know what he did. I mean, he he must have sat down with a paragraph of prose about, funnily enough, about word association and its psychological implications, just a paragraph of straight prose, and he riffed on it, basically, as a jazz musician would riff. Um, and he riffed on every part of it. You could say, you know, on notes, on chords, on sequences. He riffed on phonology, morphology, syntax, semantics, and he threw in whatever pragmatics he felt like um, just if he happened to be struck by some particular feature that he thought he could work into, you know, some, so I think somewhere in that he's got, uh, he's saying something about right or left and then he associates right, left, right, left, pay attention when I'm speaking to you and then he goes straight back into it. So I think it's just one huge Beautiful improvisation. Um, but you know, he knows his, he knows his instruments. He knows his piece. He knows his notes. He knows his music. So that's why I chose it. I just think it's a, it's a beautiful illustration of what, what one can actually do. Um, he obviously was uh, very conscious of what he's doing, but, uh, you know, it doesn't sound that way. It sounds too wonderful for words. You resisted the temptation to uh, follow that style in your analysis of the sketch. Technique of word association is not one that you, you go on to apply to the analysis of the sketch. Does it do uh, to the temptation to, to start to um, assimilate to the styles of the examples that you give? Uh, it's very tempting. It's very tempting. You know, and given that my heroes, as is obvious from the book, are people like Groucho Marx and Spike Milligan and Woody Allen, it's very tempting just to, you know, get into their mode, just to catch it and carry on doing what they're doing. As much as I can, I've tried not to make my own little jokes and witty asides in the book. I haven't always been able to stop myself. But no, I mean, I've tried to write an academic book. Um, the temptation, of course, is just to write a funny book. But um, I, there was a more serious point that I wanted to make. So, uh, but the temptation to just slide into doing what they do and riff on what they're riffing on is, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's very hard to resist. I would be interested to read the outcome, but, uh, but not that I, I was also very interested to read what you produced. And I think you succeeded admirably in maintaining a, a serious academic level whilst using these examples very skillfully. I was interested to know whether you uh, were particularly drawn to the the style of humour that you uh, use, the, the, those, as you say, those heroes of yours from, from whom you draw these examples. Was I drawn to their style, or was I drawn to what they do? I'm I'm trying to understand your question. Yes, was it was it the case that, uh, in some sense, the applicability of these examples enhanced your appreciation of their work, or was it the case that you think mm. the other way around was predominantly the direction of travel? I think the other way around. I mean, I think I've always loved that stuff, 
But I've never thought much about why I love it so much. I think that's probably what it is. And when I started thinking about it, the more I thought about it, the more I realized that it was all about linguistics. You know, or for me, it was all about here were these people who may or may not have known much about the structure of language in a technical sense. I would think probably not. Maybe Woody Allen, yes, but not the others. But they had such a fine sense of language that they were able to do this kind of joking all the time. I mean, I did, in the name of research, I watched a lot of Groucho Marx movies and read everything that he'd ever written and read everything I could find that had been written about him. And I discovered something very interesting. I think so many, more than I could have imagined of the jokes that you hear today that you think are new and fresh and funny actually were made by Groucho Marx. Um, very often unattributed, but I mean, he is the source of a huge number of linguistic jokes. So he just had a very, very, very fine sense of language. He also had a very fine sense of comedy, and some of it was non-linguistic comedy. But I think he managed to combine both those. Uh, I think Spike Milligan's the same. Uh, just an incredible sense of language. And in the case of Milligan also, I think an incredible sense of pragmatics, you know, how language is used in certain ways. And then he just spoofs it by using it in completely different and inappropriate ways. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I suppose to answer your question, I've always been deeply attracted by these things, but perhaps I haven't known why. And I began to know why when I started analyzing them. You know, and for me, it was a gift, you know. I thought, uh, this is my work. Uh, what I'm doing now is collecting and analyzing jokes and doing linguistics, does it get better than this? You know, because this is not um, what I've done in my life. I've just been doing it for the last few years. And um, it kind of was accidental. I've always used, as I said earlier, I've always used jokes in my teaching, but I never thought of them as anything other than a helpful teaching aid, you know, that just came to mind. So for me, this was, you know, a great confluence of doing a number of the things that I really love. It was very nice. Yeah, I think I envy you that because I can see you know, we have. I think we share a lot of um, a lot of sources and influences in terms of the, give all the examples that I would would occur to me to give in these contexts. I think, mm. and then you go on to talk about something else, which I have a sort of amateur interest in: uh, cryptic crosswords. Oh, I'm so pleased. Do you know how hard it is to find a linguist who's interested in cryptic crosswords? It's, you know, I, I spoke to just about all the linguists I know and many I don't know asking about whether they were interested in cryptic crosswords. And I found one and he only confessed to it after the book was written. Well, uh, I only confessed to it after the book was written. But, uh, yeah, no, the one you didn't know me before and I didn't true. put pressure on you. But, um, and I think the reason for that. I remember when I first wrote the chapter and I showed it to a linguistic colleague of mine, he just shook his head at me. He said, but it's, it's so counter to everything we know in linguistics. I said, well, exactly. That's why it's so interesting because crossword puzzles do not carve language up at the joints in the way that, uh, you know, 
linguistics does. Crossword puzzles just play fast and loose. They play fast and loose with everything. You know, uh, the only thing they have to be is fair. But, uh, you know, all bets are off. You can, um, you can play with letters as much, you know, letters and phonemes. You can play with uh, syllables and morphemes. You can analyze things whichever way you want. You can mix things up. You know, anagrams are not really a part of linguistics, I don't think, because they work with written forms. And I think in general, once you throw uh, writing and orthography and punctuation and things like that into the mix, you get all kinds of very, very, very complicated things. Um, and uh, I think linguists hate it because, uh, in general because I think it's, it's very counter to what we consider to be the natural units of, of uh, analysis. In linguistics, because crosswords just break all those rules. They don't care what they do. You know, you want to put a like a letter in the middle of a of a, a morpheme, go for it. You know, that's just part of the deal. So, um, yeah, I think I put it in the book as a very strong. Uh, well, firstly, in contrast, as a contrast to linguistic jokes, to show the ways in which crossword puzzles very much are not a natural uh, way of doing things. They are very artificial. They're a very particular language game. On the other hand, they employ all the rules of language as we know them, plus a whole lot of other rules that language that linguists would never admit. Um, I find them absolutely fascinating, but I also think that's a matter of taste. Uh, it's just that I think I am among many people who can't look at anything without fixating on the print. You know, I, I do it on, you know, shampoo bottles or whatever I'm looking at, and then I um, somehow I start reading the print and playing around with the print. And I realize that you could make other words out of those letters or – do you know that this spelt backwards is that? Or, you know, just puns relating to the words that are there. And, you know, I just free associate on print, I think. And part of my free association on print obviously involves my free association on language as well. Do you, feel it, do you find it surprising that uh, more linguists aren't interested in this, in the sort of free um, – non-specific way that I think we both share in, in the sort of these sort of manifestations of language? Um, I do and I don't. I mean, firstly, uh, the kind of work that linguists do, I think is linguists, I believe, if I may make some generalizations, love rules. We look for rules, you know. Our we want our lives and our data to be as rule-governed as possible. Uh, we love the generalization, you know, and the whole thing about crosswords is that they use them and they abuse them, you know, and there are a whole lot of different rules in this game that are not the rules of linguistics, and I think that linguists hate it. It's like when you 
teach linguistics and you're trying to teach about what a morpheme is in English and you realize that the students are confusing morphemes and syllables, you know, and then you have to stand on your head to explain to them the difference between a morpheme and a syllable. Actually, I've got a good joke on this. Uh, uh, but it's not it's not something that uh, that linguists can understand non linguists having trouble with. Whereas people who do crosswords don't care. It's all matter for rearrangement and for puzzling on the crosswords. But I also think it's a matter of taste and temperament. You know, I mean, I used to sit with my father and he would do crossword puzzles and. I never learned the rules of crosswords. I just, you know, I was apprenticed. Mm -hmm. And I used to think, how did you know that? He said, because I've got a wild mind. Uh, now, you know, uh, I think a lot of the wildness is very, very, very unruled governed. But I think the sort of mad leaps that crossword doers can perform are in some way quite similar to the mad leaps that joke tellers perform as well. They just use different matter. You know, their units are different. Does this uh, restriction to the love of the rule govern, do you think, um, also reflect linguists' typical taste in humour, which are very uh, self-effacing about your taste in humour and constantly say in the book, do you have you know the sense of humor of an eight year old which I think I don't quite buy, given the sophistication <laughs> of many of the examples that you you quote what's a what's a good linguist's joke? Oh well, I mean the joke I was going to give you earlier about the difference between syllables and morphemes uh is one that i um I once saw I think on a wall years ago. And um, you would need to see it written for one of the words, but it's uh, it said, my karma ran over my dogma. Karma spelled K-A-R-M-A. And I just thought this was the most wonderful joke I had ever heard or most wonderful piece of wordplay. But it was only when I sat down to analyze it for this book that I realized it was, it was you know, apart from just, you know, those very beautiful accidents that – you could make a very, very clear case with this about the difference between a syllable and a morpheme. And um, the fact that uh, just putting accidental syllables together can create new words, uh, playing very fast and loose with the morphemes, uh, for me, is just it's just genius. Now, it's, a, it's actually it's a hard joke to explain to people who don't know the difference between syllables and morphemes, but you can do it. But I think linguists love that joke. I really do. Um, look, a lot of people like puns. You don't have to be a, a linguist to like puns. In fact, you know, linguists sort of scoff because they're such a small part of language, you know, so puns, homophones, who cares? Um, I'm just trying to think what another joke is. I, I mean, I particularly like jokes like uh, what do ducks do before they grow up? And the answer is they grow down. Now, that's um, that's a difficult joke to get, and I've often wondered why, because, in fact, it's a children's joke. But a lot of adults don't get that joke. And I think I'm going to maybe, read it. it. Took me a couple of readings to make it. Uh, 
Yeah, I um I presented it at a humor conference sometime during the year, and a guy said to me, um, "You know, you could make that joke easier. You could say, how do you get down off an elephant?'" And he says, "No, you don't get down off an elephant. You get down off a duck." So he reckoned that would be an easier way to get the joke. But I like the other joke better because it's true, you know. They yeah. do grow. They do grow down before they grow up. Um, it's certainly more economical in its expression. Yeah, it's beauty. I mean, I think it's a beautiful joke. But you know, I've heard many of these jokes—not that one, but many of these jokes—from kids. So uh, you know, what's? I mean, I like the series of uh, you know, what's what's orange and sounds like a parrot, and the answer is a carrot. Now, funnily enough, there are kids who find that joke actually very amusing. Um, adults usually take a minute or two to realize why they find it amusing. I mean, this is, uh, you know, uh, these are anecdotal um, experiments that I do, but I, I watch who gets the jokes and not, not for pressure, but I mean, I know that it takes non-native speakers, no matter how, how high level they are and how many years they've been speaking English, it takes them longer to get these kind of jokes, which, you know, one could make a research project, I suppose, on this. Although, um, I think the trouble with testing stuff relating to humor, it's like writing, uh, about stuff related to humor. It's deadly. There's nothing funny about it, you know. It's, um, you take all the fun out of the jokes. So I think it would be quite difficult to set up something, but, uh, a comparative group of uh, second language users and first language users. I think it would be difficult to set up, but I've no doubt you'd get different, you'd get very different reaction times. So, you know. I intended to ask earlier whether you felt that the dissection of a joke you know, necessarily despoiled the humor value of it, or whether, you know, contrary to received wisdom, you belong to the, the category of people who would say that, you know, by understanding it fully, you appreciate it more fully. Or is there uh, a bit of both? There's a bit of both, I think, depending on who you are. Oh, no, who, who, who you are as a reader. I think it's a foolhardy person who writes a book about jokes and tries to analyze them. Um, because I think you do take all the fun out of it. I think you do. I mean, who wants to read an analysis of jokes? Um, I want people to read an analysis of jokes because I'm trying to make a different point. I'm trying to make a point about uh, what's involved in uh, cognitively uh, in relation to what we know about language. But I think you can... Uh, you know the the quote by E.B. White who says that analyzing a joke is a bit like dissecting a frog. Um, the frog dies in the process, and the innards are, um, I think he says, the innards are discouraging to any but uh, the most scientific mind. <laughs> and I pretty I pretty much agree with that. I think there are plenty of scientific minds though that are really interested in how jokes work. Um, what I tell my friends and family is that in this book, they will find that all the jokes are in italics. So if they'd like to, they should just read the italics and then they get all the funny bits. And um, 
you know, if they want to, they can read the discussion. But the discussion, I think, is not all over just an analysis of jokes. I mean, I think I'm making certain very important points, and I'm using the jokes along the way to illustrate those points. Um, so, you know, how to get jokes or jokes explained or something like that, I think is a pretty deadly um, kind of book you might write. I don't think it's funny, you know, to any but the, you know, the scientific mind. But the frog does die. That's my view. Well, not to dwell finally on the on the dead metaphorical frog. <laughs> Let's yes. uh, let me conclude by asking you um, what you plan to do, or if you have plans to take this uh, take this work forward in the future. You mentioned how you would be interested in trying to advance the study of the processing of humour by, for example, psycholinguistic means. Do you have anything in the pipeline? Um, not actually. I mean, I'm, I'm discussing it with one of my colleagues who does psycholinguistic processing, particularly in second language acquisition. So I have been thinking along those lines. I am... From another point of view, going back to something you were talking about very much earlier, I'm actually interested in pursuing certain pragmatic aspects of jokes. Um, so I am particularly interested in Dykes's because I think that Dykes's is the truly, truly uh, pragmatic phenomenon. There's no way that it's anything else. And I'm quite interested in how many jokes just play on Dykes's. That that's, you know, that's the, because I mean, they are the profoundly ambiguous creatures, Dykes's, just by, you know, Dykes's, just because of what they are. They're always shifting. So that, that's the project that I'm actually working on at the moment. Um, if, you know, I had the world at my control and a lot of, uh, Funding, I think the uh, the neurological processing stuff is just waiting to happen. Um, but you know, I I don't have those machines, and I'm not sure that those are easy things to set up. But I think that there is so much work to do in that regard, and indeed, there's work to do on psycholinguistic processing as well. But you know, humor responses are very difficult things. Um, so I don't know how you would measure whether people get a joke or when they get a joke or how they get the joke. I mean, there are ways of doing it, I suppose, but I still have to think a lot more about how to do it. And if anybody can help me, I'd be delighted to hear about it. Well, if anybody's out there who can help you, I hope, they, uh, I hope they'll get in touch. But in the meantime, let me say thank you once again, Deborah Ahrens, for your time. And I wish you every success with your future work. Thanks so much, Chris. I've been talking to Deborah Ahrens about her book, Jokes in the Linguistic Mind. This is Chris Cummins from New Books in Language saying thank you for listening. 